Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Thrive After Sports podcast. If you were tuning in on the power of story, appreciate you being there. I know some of you may be joining us from Author Spotlight as well. We're today with a very special guest, uh, former professional basketball player, world-renowned content creator. The man has published almost 30 books, I believe, to date. Done four TED Talks. Uh, Mr. Dre, all day, Baldwin. What's going on, Dre? I'm doing great, Taj. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited for this conversation. How are you? Man, it's a pleasure. I'm doing great. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time out to do this. Did I leave anything out of the intro? Is that accurate? Did I get my numbers right? <laughs> yes, numbers are correct. I mean, I'm sure we'll fill in the gaps of how all that stuff came together in this conversation. Though. Most definitely. That's the goal. Um, I have been admiring your work from a distance for quite some time now. Our mutual friend, Misty Buck, has been telling me that I need to reach out to you and get you on the podcast for quite some time. Uh, mm. Shout out to Misty. I know she listens to my podcast. She's been a shining light in my life. And then I heard you on my man Aswan Crookshake's podcast, uh, Move Swiftly. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal episode on there. I was I was working out listening to it, getting fired up. So excited for you to be here with, with us today to share. I think a good place to jump off is, you know, you were a, a professional basketball player for almost a decade. And your road to getting there or how you even put yourself in that position, I think will set the tone for some of the things we'll get into today. So if you don't mind, can you just share a little bit about how you became a pro basketball player? I know it wasn't the typical story. Absolutely. And uh, just to follow up on what you said there, shout out to Misty. Uh, she's down here in South Florida where I am as one as well. And also I saw you interviewed uh, recently Tanika Rubin. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah. I interviewed Tanika from my, my overseas, you know, because I, you know, I talk about overseas basketball. So I had interviewed her as well. So shout out to Tanika. So clearly we both we got a lot of mutual friends here who are all you know, active out here doing stuff. So anyway, to answer your question, uh, my background, I come from the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, live in South Florida now for the last almost 14 years. And I was always into sports, Taj, you know, played some baseball, played some football, wasn't really good at either one of those, never really played football for real. I never got the equipment. But then I moved on to basketball when I was about 14. And that's pretty late for somebody who wants to go somewhere in basketball. I mean, you want to go to college, let alone the pros, it's pretty late, 14. Nowadays, you got kids, you know, they got to start at, their parents want them starting at six years old, so they get that scholarship. You know, so I didn't make my high school team until I was a senior. We only had one team, no JV, no freshman team. And then graduating from high school, I wanted to play college ball. I knew I was going to go to college either way, just on the academic side. But I wanted to play ball, but I didn't have a scholarship. And I think people here understand the concept of scholarship. So I had to walk on in college. And that means nobody knew me. Nobody knew my face and my name. I wasn't invited anything. I just literally walked into the gym and just tried to play my way onto the basketball team. And since I was at a smaller school, a division school, this is a division three school now, I was able to make the team. Played college ball at the D3 level. Didn't set the world on fire, but I did play. And then when I graduated from college, I still wanted to play pro ball. Now, at this point, I had no idea. At least in college, I knew, all right, enroll in college, go find a gym and play basketball. At least I had an idea of what to do. To play professional basketball, I had no idea. Now, I knew overseas basketball existed. And luckily, one of my college teammates, he actually knew people who had played overseas basketball, but we still didn't quite know, like, all right, well, what's the process? What happens? The only thing we knew about was that the, there were these events called exposure camps. Now, an exposure camp is like a job fair, but for athletes. Now, everybody knows what a job fair is. You show up, you, you know, talk about, usually just talk about what you can do or you give proof of what you can do, like a resume or a CV, and you share that with the decision makers. Now, with an exposure camp, how it's different is that you don't just talk about what you can do. You actually bring your sneakers and you play. So I went to an exposure camp. This is just to give everybody a time frame here. We're talking about the summer of 2005. So I graduated in 2004, summer of 2005. We went to this exposure camp it was in Orlando, Florida. And me and a couple college teammates, they were out of school as well. We rented a car in Philly, drove from Philly to Orlando. That's about a 19 hour drive on a Friday afternoon. We got there at 9 a.m. Saturday morning. The camp started at 9 a.m. Saturday morning. So we hopped out the car and started playing right there at 9 a.m. Now, at age 23, I could get away with that. Probably couldn't do it now, but I did it then. And, you know, uh, played well at that exposure camp. It was only two days. We played two games each day. I did pretty well at that camp. You know, they gave me a little scouting report. They gave me footage of the games that I had played in. And I didn't get signed to a contract from that camp specifically. What I did was I took the footage and I went on Google 
And I started calling every basketball agent that I could find because I reasoned that in order for me to play overseas, I need overseas teams to know that I exist, but they don't know me. So I'm thinking, who does know the teams overseas? Who's a go-between? And the go-between is an agent. So agents work in a professional sports world the same way they work in a literary world or TVs and movies is that they're the, the middleman between the jobs and the talent. So I was the talent, I wanted a job, let me find this middleman. So I start calling every agent I could find on Google. And this is before social media. So you just had literally calling these people, cold calling agents. And I would email them if I could find an email address and just let them know, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's a link to my scouting report. And I have footage if you want to see it. So uh, out of about 60 agents that I reached out to, maybe 20 of them said, okay, let me see what you got. And I sent each one of those agents my footage. Now, let's be clear. This is 2005. This is not a YouTube link. YouTube wasn't out yet. This is a VHS tape. You remember VHS tapes, Taj? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I'm sending, I'm making copies. I had a double-decker VCR in my house. Now, for the millennials listening to this and don't understand this terminology, just Google it or ask your parents. They'll tell you what a VCR and a VHS tape is. So I'm making copies of my VHS tape. I went to Eckert Grocery Store. And I bought a 10 pack of blank VHS tapes and I'm making copies of that tape from my exposure camp and I'm mailing it in a bubble mailer. I'm actually walking to the mailbox two blocks from my house in Philly and dropping it in the mailbox and mailing these tapes out. It sounds like it was such a long time ago, right? This is not damn near 15 years. It seems like it was such a long time. So I'm mailing these tapes out. Now that all those 20 tapes that I sent out, one agent got back in touch with me after receiving my tape and he said, all right, I want to represent you. And that guy, he was based in Virginia. He was actually a lawyer, but he was getting into the sports business. He didn't stay in it, but he got in it long enough that he became my agent and he helped me get my first contract. That was in Countess Lithuania in the summer of 2005. So that's how I got into pro basketball. And then as a side note, I'm sure that, well, this will probably come up. I took that VHS tape, got to put on an audiovisual CD, took it to an audiovisual store, got to put it on a data CD and put that CD in a computer and uploaded that to this brand new website months later. That was called YouTube. And that's kind of how people started to get to know me was YouTube, not overseas basketball, ironically enough. But that's how I got started playing overseas. Wow, man. What a story, Dre. Thank you for sharing that. And that's why I said I really wanted you to go sure. into that a little bit because it definitely does set the tone, just the mentality mm -hmm. behind it, your approach, the fact that you were picking up the phone and calling people. You know, I think that's a lost mm -hmm. art, but you obviously wanted it bad enough to be able to make it happen. You didn't make excuses. And I feel like you had the mentality where it's like, you can lay your head on the pillow every night knowing that no matter how things panned out, which obviously ended with you getting a professional contract, but no matter how things panned out, that's what I wanted people to, to take away from it is that you were putting in the work regardless. And that's that's a beautiful that's right. thing for people to hear. Like you weren't going to leave it up to chance. Like if it didn't work out, it wasn't going to be your fault, you know? So man, yep. super powerful, Dre. Thank you for that. And then you said once you uploaded it to YouTube, that's when things, that's when people started to know about you. So I take it that mm -hmm. while you were playing, you started to build a little bit of a reputation and started putting out content during your professional career. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what happened. So once I got signed, you know, I'm playing. I was in Lithuania and I you know that same agent got me probably my first three jobs playing professional basketball. One was a traveling team in the States. Then I went to Mexico and they got my first two jobs. And then I went to Mexico and this is all like in my first year and a half of professional basketball and the youtube video was just on youtube now mind you youtube wasn't youtube at that time it was just a place where you know you put little videos or your baby did something funny or your your cat was jumping up the wall chasing after the little laser dot that's all youtube was at that time so i wasn't paying that much attention to it but i did notice that people were leaving comments on this footage that i had put up there and they were just asking questions just about basketball like they were looking at me like I was some authority on basketball because it was nobody else doing it. And I looked like I could play, even though they didn't know who I was. Like this guy looks like he knows what he's doing. Let's ask him. So what I realized was that this was an underserved audience of basketball players who were similar to me, actually. They wanted to get better at basketball, but they didn't have anyone to teach them. Now the advantage that they had over somebody like me, I'm growing up in the nineties and I didn't have anybody to show me the ropes of the game. They didn't have anyone physically to do it, but because they were the next generation, they could go to the internet and crowdsource information, whereas you know, I didn't have that luxury. So they were looking at me as just someone who could help them out. They didn't care who I was or you know what my pedigree was. I just looked like I knew how to play, so let's ask him. He, he's better than me. So I would make videos every time I went to the gym. 
by around 2006, 2007, I had this cheap little $100 camera. This is before we had the video cameras on the phones. So I had a camera. I would bring that with me to the gym every day. And I would just put the camera on the bleacher on the sideline of the court while I was practicing and just let it run, just let it record the whole time I was working out. And then I would just take little clips from my workout and I would just put them up on YouTube. And people were watching them and people were liking the stuff. And I'm like, okay, people just want to see me practice. I didn't think it was a big deal, Tosh, because I figured every basketball player practices every day and works on their game all the time. I figured it was, a, it was nothing special about it. What I realized, though, over the years is that every basketball player does not practice every day. It wasn't a normal thing. I don't know why, but again, it was just normal to me. So by around 2009, that's when Google had purchased YouTube. And that's when Google started running advertisements on YouTube videos. So believe it or not, some people who are listening, there was a time when you could watch YouTube all day and there'll be no ads. But that's when Google bought the company and they needed to make money off this company. YouTube was losing a lot of money because all the bandwidth they were using, letting people put up videos for free. So it was around that time that Google basically created a business opportunity for anybody by through making videos. Now, I'm still playing basketball at this point, but I would have a job, then not have a job, have a job, not have a job. So I was like, I would be a free agent, then I'd be signed. And there was a lot of up and down. Now, by this point, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and saying, OK, well, this is not really sustainable. If I just keep having a job, not having one, I don't even control my own destiny. I don't know when my next paycheck is coming. So how can I get some control over my life? And I asked myself a really important question. The question was this. How can I combine three things? Number one, something that I, I really have talent at and I have passion for, which was playing ball. Number two, something that I'm really good at that is that would differentiate me from anybody else who can play ball. And that thing was the Internet. I've always been I always had this inclination for computers and the Internet. When I came across the Internet, I knew it was for me. And number three, that I can make money from. So I needed all three passion and talent skill that differentiates me and a way to make money. If I can combine those three, that's the thing I was gonna do. And again, this is perfect timing because now you can make money from putting videos on the internet. Now we're starting to use phrases like social media and content and personal branding. And this was perfect timing for me. So this is when I started putting more time into my website, dreyallday.com, which I still have. I started looking at ways I can create my own products and services, ways I can sell things online all based on my background in basketball. The difference between this and overseas was that if you play overseas, somebody has to want you. Somebody has to sign you to a contract. But if nobody wants you, you're unsigned, no matter how good you think you are. But when you're on the internet, you basically control your own destiny. So I started really putting my, outside of playing basketball, I put time into what I was doing on the internet, whether that was editing videos, you know, sprucing up my website, creating products and services, communicating with my audience. I've always read all my comments. I reply to comments still to this very day. And that's how people really came to know me, Taj. So like I said, you put in all that time to become a professional athlete, but how many people have ever watched an overseas basketball game? Probably very few. But how many people have watched a YouTube video? Everybody. So people know me from YouTube. Again, it's, it's just the funny thing. People know me from YouTube, but the real focus was playing overseas. And that's the reason I was in the gym doing the things you saw on YouTube because I was trying to play overseas. But that's the thing that got me known. So that's kind of where it started. That was probably around 2009, 2010. In that time period, that's when the online stuff really started to become. I realized like this is going to be bigger than anything I do overseas. Because number one, I can do it forever. I don't have to be a pro basketball player to keep doing this. Because people were really buying into the stuff I was talking about, like my mindset and the way I was articulating things. That's what people really were attaching to. It wasn't just the fact that I played ball. Yes, the basketball is what drew some people in, but when they got to know who I was, that's the thing that really made it sticky. So I realized I could do that forever and it would last a lot longer than a basketball career. Because at some point, you know, you're playing ball, those knees can't jump anymore. So you got to figure out, you know, what else you're going to do. <laughs> so right. I already had that plan in place halfway through my career. I kept playing for another five years, but I already knew what I was going to do when I was done. Man, see, and this is one of the most fascinating parts about your story to me, Dre, is that, like you said, you were already halfway through your career. So you were doing all this, posting all these videos before, like you said, branding was a thing or building a personal brand or before social media really started to take off. And I think you were ahead of your time. And it's almost like the time's caught up to you in a sense because you were already doing it. So as, as your career started to wind down, 
did you did you know that it was time to go full speed in the latter half once 2009 came around and you know you like you're already in the swing of things you're starting to see it gain traction did you start how did you put more energy into the business side of things while also managing a professional career excellent question so the good thing about being a professional athlete and also the challenge for a lot of athletes is that we have a lot of downtime a long day for a professional athlete is probably four hours of work you have a, a two-hour practice in the morning and maybe you might have two practices a day i played on teams where we were practice we played a game once a week on saturday monday through friday we would practice twice a day that's a long day for us and those practices might be 60 to 90 minutes so the whole rest of the day you could pretty much do whatever you want to do so this is why you see athletes making rap albums. Most of them should stop rapping, but they do it. They make rap albums. You got athletes making clothes. You got athletes doing, they were professional video gamers, you know, starting businesses. Because we got so much time on our hands. It's not that athletes aren't focused on their sport, but it's because we got so much time to do whatever we want to do. So having all that downtime gave me the space to you know, make my website and do blogging. Me, my thing was, I like to write, I like to read. And once I saw the video thing that people were catching on to, I like making videos. So that's what I did with my downtime, whereas other people did all those other things. So for me, by around that, between 2008, 2010, that's when I really started to focus on the online stuff and realize I can make money doing it and this could become a future business. And there were several things that happened. So I'll tell you each one of them. So around 2008, I read this book called The Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. A lot of people are familiar with that book. And I used to read Tim's blog as well. So I don't remember if he said this in his blog or in his book, but he gave this example of, or right, if you want to test the product, you want to sell a product online and you want to figure out whether there's a market for the product, here's what you do. You go on this free site called Weebly, which is basically let you, it's like a free hosting platform. You can put a website up there for free. So you go on that website, you put up a one page website. All you put on the web page is this. You say what your product is about, what it's called, and then you say what the product is. All right, so for example, I was gonna sell a basketball training program, or at least I wanted to test if it was, there was a viable market. So I said, simple to advanced ball handling program. I'm gonna make a program about how to dribble a basketball. Simple thing. You say what it is, you give a little bit of detail what's in the program, you say how much it's gonna be, and then you put a button there that says, all right, buy this product for X dollars. Mine was gonna be $5. Buy this product for $4.99. This is simple one page, again, 2009. And then he said, put $5 worth of money into a Google advertisement and drive traffic to that web page. Now, this is back in, again, over 10 years ago when you could put $5 in a Google ad and actually get results. You can't do that anymore. So anybody want to try this, it might be $50 now, but it was $5 then. So I did it and I started to get traffic. And he said, all you need to do when people click that button to go to the next page, have a page on there that says, hey, our product is under construction right now. But if you want it, put your email address in right here. And when it's ready, we'll email you. And Tim said, if you get people putting their email address in that box, that means you have a viable market for your product because these people don't know you. They're not your friends. They found you. You told them the product and you told them the price and they clicked the button because they want it. So now go make the product and then just email those people back and sell it to them. So I said, okay. And I did that and I started to get email addresses. And that's when I said, all right, I'm gonna go make this product. And my first product was a simple, the first product that I created myself was a simple PDF document. I took a bunch of ball handling drills that I had already did. I just took the, you know, the way that I did it, I would write it out in words. I would explain the drill. I would put a link to a video so you could see me doing it. And then I would give it a name. And I said, all right, here's what you do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through a week. It was a seven day program. I sold it for $4.99. I made a YouTube video, two minute video, and announced the product, hey, introducing this product, put a link to it, and that's how I became an entrepreneur. That was really when I became an entrepreneur. And I remember the next, that night, it was either the next morning or that night, when I put this video up and announced it, I used to have a Blackberry phone. Do you remember the Blackberries uh, back in the day, Todd? So I, I had the Blackberry. And if you got an email or a text on your BlackBerry, there's a little red light that would start blinking. And I remember when the red light was blinking and I looked at my phone and it said, email, you made a new sale. And I remember seeing that. And it, this was so it was so early in these days that I had to open my laptop then and I had to open my email and I had to add an attachment of the program and email it to the person that bought it from me because I didn't even know what auto delivery was. You know, how now you buy something online, you automatically get it. I didn't know that existed. I didn't know that was a thing. So this is how you know, early I was 
and doing what I was doing. And I remember I would wake up in the mornings and I would see what products had sold. And I was like, oh, let me email this person. Let me email to that person. Did that for about a week before I found out that auto delivery was a thing. So I could remove myself from the equation. But that's how I got started. Next thing that happened was around 2010. I realized that people were asking me so much about mindset because they would just see the way that I was answering questions and the way I would talk about things in the comments and because they knew my background. And they were like, man, you walked on in college, you got cut from your high school team three times, but you kept playing. How'd you get that, that mentality to keep trying, to keep working on your game, to keep believing in yourself and to you know, go against the odds and try to make it? So I started making these videos every Monday called The Weekly Motivation. And Weekly Motivation was just a little selfie video before selfie videos were popular. I mean, just talking two to three minutes about anything mindset related that I would just think of every day. Every Monday, I did the weekly motivation for about 400 weeks in a row. And the weekly motivation became the foundation for everything that I do now post basketball. But the players loved it. And this is how Taj, I started to draw an audience of people who were not athletes when I did the weekly motivation. Because people would say to me, Dre, look, I'm not trying to learn how to make the NBA. I'm not trying to learn how to do a crossover. But I subscribe to you on YouTube because when you do that weekly motivation, that's the only video I watch. All right, I don't watch the one about the Steph Curry pull-up or the Kobe footwork, but I do watch the one about weekly motivation because that one, anybody needs that. I don't care what they do for a living, they need that one. So this told me, all right, when I'm done playing ball, the stuff that I talk about, anybody can use this. I don't have to limit myself to just athletes. So that was around 2010. Uh, the next thing that happened was around 2013 when Nike had did this event called uh, Summer is Serious. It was like a... Um, it was like a basketball influencer event. I don't even know if we were using the phrase influencer at the time. But I got chosen as one of the players to participate in this event they did. It was like a three-day event up in New York City. They flew us in, gave us a bunch of free gear. Kevin Durant was there. James Harden was there. It was a really well-done event that they put on in Brooklyn. And at that point, I realized, okay, the power of the brand, of being known on the Internet this is actually worth money because Nike invested a lot of money into that event. They didn't pay us in cash, but they paid us in you no know, cash and prizes and you know, all the experience. And I said, OK, the power of the brand, this this means a lot. This is a big thing. It's worth so much money to these people. And they probably made more money off it than we did in terms of the stuff that we got. So I, I just started looking at the game. And the next thing that happened, the last one I'll give you was around 2014 when I met a woman who became my mentor for the speaking business. She was a full time is a full time professional speaker. And when we met each other, she looked at my stuff and looked at my materials and said, OK, you go, you're actually out here doing stuff. You have a name. You're putting videos out every day, even though it's basketball related. All right. You've actually taken some you've taken initiative and made something of yourself already. So listen, I'll give you some of my time and invest in you because I think you're actually going to use what I tell you. Because one thing that she told me was she's had, because she was known as a speaker down here in South Florida, she would get people coming to her all the time asking for the same stuff that I was asking for. Like, hey, I want to get into the speaking business. Can you tell me how to do it? And she said, I would sit down with people all the time, give them the same information I gave you, Dre, and they would do nothing with it. But when I met you and I saw that you were already doing stuff on your own, I figured that you might actually use the information that I give you. And that's the only reason she gave me some of her time. And I took everything she told me and I ran with it. And that's how I started to learn how I could build the bridge from athlete to into the thought leadership world. So coming out of the sports world and kind of establishing myself as somebody who is you know, reputable outside of the sports world because these days a lot of people i deal with know nothing about basketball they don't care never saw me play so who am i to them if all i'm talking about is ball so all those points along the way really helped me start building that bridge and i didn't stop playing until like 2014 2015 is when i stopped playing ball but all of these things were happening along the way and at the same time Taj. I was still having that up and down in basketball. I would be signed and then I'd be unsigned. I'd be have a contract then I'd be a free agent, not knowing where my next job was coming from. So all these times I have that motivation. Like, right, let me figure out this other thing outside of sports, because obviously I can't depend on this one, because what if nobody wants to sign me? I don't care how good I think I am and nobody signs me, then I'll have a job. So that was my kind of the driving force to make me really focus on. Let me build this business thing so I can have some some ownership and some control over what I'm doing. Mm. Man, Dre, there's so much there. I'm, I'm loving this. I want to go back to this before I forget it, but how you talked about the woman who was willing to help you and essentially give you mm -hmm. free consulting because she said you were already helping your, you were already doing something, already being proactive. And I always love, I just want to stay on that for a second. Like I want everybody listening, especially former athletes, especially anyone who's looking to get into entrepreneurship, 
Um, people are more likely to help you. Just heed Dre's words right now. People are always more likely to help you when they already see you helping themselves. I always say it's like, you know, if you're driving by and someone's on the side of the road pushing their car, you're more likely to help the person who's pushing their car towards the gas station than the person who's standing there with their thumb out just waiting for someone to help them or come pick them up. So I love that you shared yes. that. Um, this is like, I'm listening to you, Dre. I'm like, I feel like I'm listening, like watching a documentary or something right now, man. We can easily <laughs> go year by year about every everything that happened in your life, but I'm gonna be respectful of your time. Just for the people who are listening, um, I think it would be helpful for some athletes because you already had some great things going on. I mean, the way you became a prof professional athlete, but during your career as well. But for the people listening, how did your career sort of um, wind down a little bit? How did, it, how did it come to an end? And then what was it like being like, okay, now I have all this time to really go full speed into business? What was that process like? That's a good question. Nobody ever asked me that. So this is around 2014. I already I could already see like the, the writing on the wall. It was time for me to start moving on because I had been from 2005, let's say, when I started playing overseas up to that point. So we're talking uh, almost 10 years here. The gym every day. We're talking two, three workouts a day. Skill work on the court cardiovascular work and weight training that was at least two workouts a day for damn near 10 years straight and i was starting to feel like maybe i was getting a little bit burnt up burnt out but i wasn't sure so i decided to do an experiment on myself so at the time i was living in in south beach and i said i'm gonna take a week off from working out i'm just not going to do any basketball work no weightlifting, no cardio for a week only exercise i'll do is i'll do yoga every day i had taken up yoga probably 2013 so I did that every day for a week and I didn't miss being in the gym. Now, anytime before that, if I had gone on vacation, I go see my family, maybe somebody was coming into town, I didn't work out, I would be itching to get back in the gym. I would feel like I was missing out on something or I had shortchanged myself because I wasn't working out. But that one week when I didn't work out and I didn't feel bad about it, I said, okay, it's, it's over. It's time for me to move on because I no longer needed the work. Now, some people will tell you there are players, athletes and trainers who will say things like, well, look, you don't have to love the work as long as you love the result. I don't agree with that. I think if you're going to be a professional at what you do, you need to embrace everything that is a part of it, everything that goes into it. You might not love it, but you need to need to do it because, you know, if you're not doing that, you're going to slip. Now, I could have kept playing ball and nobody would have known that I was taking time off and not working as hard. It would have eventually shown, but it would have took a while because I had almost 10 years of work built up to that point but when i knew i wasn't excited about going to the gym every day anymore and i didn't need it i said all right i'm not going to let my game slip because i'm not going to be that player who used to be good like, i don't want anybody looking at me like hey i remember he was good like five years ago he, he don't have it anymore but no i don't want to be that person so in 2014 i remember i was playing pickup ball one day with a bunch of older guys and it was a guy i was talking to and i was asking him or not asking him, he was asking me you know what are you going to do you know when you're done playing ball because he knew my age at that time, what am I, 30, I was 32 at the time. And I said, well, I want to go into professional speaking. And he said, but I said, I don't know how to do it. He said, well, have you heard of Toastmasters? And I said, I've heard of it, but I didn't know what it was. He said, well, it's a place where people go and practice public speaking. So it's probably a good place you could at least get started there. So I went to the next Toastmasters meeting in South Beach, Miami. I had never, I had heard of Toastmasters, but I had no idea what it was. I looked it up. It's a free volunteer organization for those who don't know where it's all about communication, both listening and speaking. So I go to the next meeting. I sit there and, and watch what goes on. I'm like, this is fine. The people are friendly. So I joined the group. And the first speech that I gave, I just talked a little bit about my background. The speech is only five minutes. And I said, well, the reason I'm here is because I want to get into professional speaking after basketball. And I'm pretty much done with basketball. So I'm just trying to figure out how I, what's my next step to getting into professional speaking. It just so happened in the room that day, was a guy who was just at the same time he was getting out of playing professional football. Now, his name was Philip Buchanan. Is I mean, he's still alive. He had played at University of Miami, L.A. Raiders, um, Miami Dolphins, played for several teams in the NFL. And he was about my age. And he was I didn't even know who he was because, you know, football players, you don't know their faces. So he introduced himself. I'm talking to him. And he says, you know, I'm about to go to this conference in California. That's all about professional speaking. Now, I had a prior engagement, so I couldn't go to the conference. I, I didn't even know about it. But he said, look, when I come back, I'll be at the next meeting. I'll just throw you whatever any people I meet. I'll just give you their information. You can use it. And I said, all right, cool. I appreciate it. So he went. He comes back and he gives me one name, one number. That was the woman who became my mentor. I called that woman cold called her. 
because I thought Phil would introduce me, but I couldn't get in touch with him. I didn't, he didn't come to the meeting like he said he would. All he gave me was a name and a phone number. So I just called the number and she Googled me right there on the spot while I'm talking to her on the phone. And I could tell she was interested because she saw I had a website. She saw I had the videos. She saw I had already written a couple of books. So she was like, all right, this guy's actually, he's already created some momentum for himself. I'll give him a little bit of my time. And that's how that got started. And that was, yeah, that was 2014. And we became colleagues because there were some things I could help her with. It was kind of like a barter. She gave me that knowledge on the thought leadership side, but she wasn't established like on the internet. She was known in the, in the speaking world, but she didn't have her, like she wasn't making content like that. She wasn't blogging like that. She didn't write as much as I did. So she said, look, you can help me with the content stuff. I'll help you with this thought leadership stuff. So we basically helped each other and built a relationship over the next couple of years. And I actually even shouted her out in my book, Work On Your Game, when I talked about mentorship, because she's the one who gave it to me. And like you said, Taj, the reason she was willing to invest in me is because I was already helping myself. I wasn't just some athlete saying, all right, I just finished playing ball, help me. Because you know, there are too many of them asking that question and she wasn't going to invest in that. So that was how I got you know, into knowing about what I'm going to do thought leadership wise. And in 2015, that was the last time I played a basketball game. I've not played a single game of basketball since. So that's how I got out of basketball and into the thought leadership thing. And just to be clear, to put a cap on this question, this answer is that I already was doing, I was already selling products for five years. I'd already been writing books since 2010. I'd already been creating content since 2005. So it's not like I just woke up one day and said, all right, now let me get started on this. I was already doing it. So I already had this runway and momentum going. By the time I stopped playing ball, all I had to do was take all this time now from basketball and I could just put it into what I already had established. Wow. Wow. I think uh, I definitely want to stay on the business side of things and talk about how you, you consistently put yourself in position. I definitely want to stay on that, but I want to go back to something I wrote down before I forget. And that's how you talked about you voluntarily walking away from the game of basketball. I think that mm -hmm. that's a conversation that needs to be had uh, because a lot of athletes, including myself, you know, at a certain point you fall in love, you fall out of love with the game and there's nothing wrong with being like, like you said, I'm going to, I'm going to pack it up and get out of here before they kick me out before it becomes, you know, uh, apparent right. before it becomes clear. I had a friend I grew up with, one of my best friends, he had an opportunity to, uh, he didn't get drafted, but he got invited to some camps for the, in the NFL. Mm. And he was just like, nah, I'm not going to do it. I'm done. You know, he didn't even want to go, right. go for it. And at the time, people were looking at him like, why would you not take this opportunity? He was just like, flat out, I'm done. And I think some, you know, a lot of athletes fall out of love with the game, not even at the professional level, but at the collegiate level. And I appreciate you being transparent mm -hmm. with that part of your story because people need to hear that to know it's, it's pretty common and you can walk away. You don't have to wait for them to kick you out. So um, that was huge. And then I feel like just everything you shared after that, you know, Toastmasters and, and connecting with the, the mentor and, um, how you've been putting yourself in position all those years. I just really feel like your journey has has been a mixture of just like, it's almost been instinctive in a sense. You know what I mean? I feel like I get that sense from you by hearing hearing everything you've been through that you instinctively just knew, of course you had to work your ass off. Of course you had to put yourself in position, but where to go was instinctive. So I'd like to use this time, um, if you don't mind, if you could just give some advice to athletes who may be in transition, like maybe they did get kicked out or they're, you know, they didn't walk away voluntarily and now they're like, damn, what am I supposed to do now? Um, can you give any advice to those athletes about how you begin the process of finding clarity for that next chapter to create the next chapter of your life? Yeah, and it's a, a tough question for a lot of athletes to answer. And I'll start off by telling you just an anecdote, something that I always talk about when I mention um, transitioning from sports to whatever the next step is for athletes is something from Kobe Bryant is that after he had retired and we know he was uh, making kids books and he was coaching his daughter and he was doing all these other things. There was an article I read about him that was a profile just about his business endeavors after sports. And one of the things that Kobe said was, listen, 20 years from now, if my greatest accomplishment is something that I did with the Lakers, I'm a failure. And his whole point and what he was saying was, look, I have more life to live here. So if I spend the next 20 years and I don't achieve at the same level that I achieved the previous 20 years, I just wasted these 20 years. So even though what I did in basketball was impressive, I had the same expectations of myself after basketball. 
And the thing that athletes have to understand, and listen, Kobe was an exception. He played 20 years. He was damn near 40 and stopped playing basketball. Most athletes are not even 30, and they're out of the game. So and you, if you're an athlete, you're probably in good shape. You probably have good health. You're going to be alive until you're 80, 100 years old. What else do you bring to the table? I mean, you don't want your greatest accomplishment to be when you were 27 and you're 52 or 80. You know, so you ask yourself, like, do you want to continue contributing to society? Because the further away you get from an accomplishment, any accomplishment, the less that accomplishment matters. Now, I stopped playing ball in 2015. Five years from now, I'll probably talk about it a little bit less because it won't matter as much. Right. Because I got further away from it. So we always want to make sure we're creating what's the next thing that you've done? What have you done? What have you done lately? You know, because the next generation is not going to be impressed by something if the last time you did it was 15 years ago. What are you doing now? So the thing that I want athletes to take with them when it comes to transitioning, getting to that next step is asking yourself, just looking at your experience as an athlete. What are some things that you learned as an athlete or some things you went through, even the bad stuff that someone who's not an athlete could utilize? And this is something I learned from my mentor early on, is that most of the things that we do and go through as athletes, people who work in offices, they need these same things leadership, uh, motivation, if you want to call it that, discipline, mental toughness, uh, dealing with coworkers, dealing with being in the spotlight, dealing with failure, dealing with success, having being in a high pressure environment, being in an environment where you're expected to perform at a high level on a consistent basis under pressure. All of those things, everybody needs that. All right. Those could be that could be a basketball player. That could be someone working at a Fortune 500 company. That could be a lawyer. It could be a doctor. It can be a teacher. It can be a student. Everybody needs those things. Now, you don't have to go into those areas, but those are just some seed uh, attributes that you need when you play sports, no matter what sport it is. And you can also pivot completely away from that and go into something else. I mean, there are a lot of athletes who go into like franchising and go into real estate and those type of things. But just asking yourself, like, do I want to still achieve? Is my life about the ball or is it about achievement? Because if it's about the ball, then, okay, you got up here as an athlete. Now the rest of your life is going to go that way. I don't think most people want that. If it's about achievement, okay, I did this in football. I did this in baseball. Okay, why can't I do the exact same thing? And here's a point that I would give athletes. And a lot of athletes, they might have to go through some hard knocks to understand this, is that when you step out of the sports realm and you step into the business world, you're a rookie all over again. And when you were a rookie in sports, you were at the bottom of the totem pole. You walked in that locker room, you were nobody. You have achieved nothing. You have done nothing on this level. Everybody in here has done more than you. And it's the same thing when you step into the business world. You're a nobody at first. You had to do the work. You got to show up every single day and do the work in the business world the same way that you showed up every day and did the work as an athlete. And if you're not willing to have that discipline, then uh, you shouldn't have the expectation. All right. With expectations, you got to have the discipline to match those expectations and the work ethic to match those expectations. The same way you did all that work in sports, you got to do the work in the work world, whatever work that's going to be that you're stepping into. So understand that what you did as an athlete will get you recognized and people will give you five minutes because you were an athlete. They'll pay attention, but you still got to have a substance and the substance is the work. It's the discipline of you showing up every single day and doing that work. Yes, sir, man. Substance pretty much sums it up. I, I love everything you shared because it's not only just you, like those are obviously very powerful words, but the substance comes in by people being able to look at your example, right? Being able to see what you've accomplished. And that's the part that's inspiring to me and why I'm excited for people to listen to this episode because you've been able to carve out such a powerful lane for yourself, actually using the advice that you just shared. On top of this too, like I wanted to ask you about this. This is huge because I'm vice president of a publishing company. I just published my first book last year, came on board with the company. My second book is coming out in a couple of weeks. And now I have the pleasure of helping other people write and publish their books. And it's such a great thing to see like where someone's life or career or business is before the book and after the book. You published 27 books, Dre. Is that right or do you have more? Did I miss some? Do you have more? Is it 28, 29 Man, now? 20, 20, my 29th is coming out August 3rd. It's on pre-order. So oh, I'm slipping. 29 books. <laughs> you probably got yeah. a 30 or somewhere just tucked ready for release too. So um, yeah, I wanted so. to talk to you about that because you were already <laughs> like you already were a businessman, you know, before your career ended. Um, you were already creating mm-hmm. content. You already had products and services. 
So what was the decision like? It's a two part question because I want to know, like, what was the decision like to publish the first book? What was the reason behind that? And why keep going till you're at almost 30 books? Can you just talk about the mindset behind all that? Sure. Well, the first book is called Buy a Game. And it's a book that I wrote because I heard about the concept of self-publishing around this. Again, that 2008, 2010 period is really when I just had an awakening when it came to entrepreneurship and the Internet, social media and all that stuff. Web 2.0 and all that came around around that time at the time that I needed it. So when I heard about self-publishing, I'd always been into writing. And what a lot of people don't know is that I was blogging before YouTube came out. The first thing I did on the internet was blogging, but I didn't blow up from blogging. I got known through YouTube, but I was writing first. I'd always been into reading and writing, Taj. So when I saw the possibility to self-publish a book, I said, okay, well, let me just tell my story because players were watching me on YouTube and they were always asking me about my background. So I said, all right, let me just write it down and I can, I'll just put it out for free. I'll just give it out for free just as a, a way to serve my audience. Again, I wasn't really thinking long-term strategically about it, but that kind of became the thing, right? Now they call that a lead magnet. I wasn't even calling it that. It was just me writing a book and giving it out just because I wanted to tell my story. It was really to serve my, my own vanity to tell my story, honestly. But it was serving my audience at the same time because they wanted to know the story. So I wrote Buy a Game in 2010 put it out for free, and we probably had 100,000 people download that book. We still give it away for free to this day. So that's how I got started writing books. And then when I was doing the weekly motivation videos and I had these basketball programs. Now the basketball programs, the five-hour PDFs, and I made more, obviously, later on, I called those Hoop Handbook, like Hoop for Basketball Handbook. Now, when I would make the weekly motivation videos though, and again, as I told you, I always read my comments and I would always reply to the comments. So one day somebody left a comment and they said, well, Dre, look, you already make these weekly motivation videos and you had this product called Hoop Handbook. Why don't you just make a mental handbook? I mean, since you're always talking about mindset, and I said, okay, I'll make the mental handbook. That became my next book. So I wrote the mental handbook. And then, all right, I'm talking about mindset. What are other things on mindset that I always talk about? I always talked about discipline. So I wrote the mirror of motivation. Then I was always talking about confidence. The players always ask me about confidence. So I wrote the super you. And then I just wanted to give them people like a, a handbook of something they could look at every single day and have a new idea as far as their mindset. And I, instead of the video, I want to put it in a book. So I wrote 100 mental game best practices. And those were the next four books that I wrote. And since I was already playing overseas, I would always get players reaching out to me asking about how to play overseas. Because they, everybody wants to know how to do it. Because even to this day, it's still not exactly clear how to play basketball overseas. Except unless you get it off my blog and stuff that I wrote about. So I wrote the Overseas Basketball Blueprint. So all I was doing with my books was just answering questions that people were asking. And it's the same thing people do on YouTube. The same thing people do on a podcast. The difference with a book is, and Taj, as an author, you probably notice and you'll know it even more the more you put your stuff out, is that books have what's much more permanence than content. Content comes and goes. You put out a YouTube video, like I get players who will, or anybody will reach out to me and say, Dre, you have a video on such and such. And I send them a link to a video that I put out two years ago. And they'll be like, all right, that's cool, but that video is old. You got something new? And I'm like, well, if I made a new one, I'll say the exact same thing. But because it's two years old, they don't care about it. But a book, people don't look at books that way. Like your book could be 10 years old. You give it to somebody today, they'll read it because it's new to them. And it's just, I don't know, it's human psychology. I don't know the, the science behind it, but we respect a book much more because content is only hot like the first 24 hours that is out then it's old but a book is timeless so all the stuff that i talk about in my videos and in my content i put them in books because the book will last longer than the content does the content might get me found on google by somebody but the book lasts a whole lasts a whole lot longer so that's why i've always been into making sure that i get my my biggest ideas most important ideas down in a book on top of the fact you can sell a book, you can actually make money from it as opposed to a YouTube video. I mean, you can make some money off YouTube, but more money off the book. And I've always been a writer. You know, writing is the first thing that I was doing. I was writing, again, before YouTube was YouTube, before YouTube was even out. I was writing. So I've always been a writer and I always will be. And the thing is, I can reach an audience of readers even if I'm not hot on YouTube. YouTube is more for YouTube. Is, you got you to kind of be trendy to, to pop off on YouTube, but you don't have to be trendy to sell a book. 
You know, you just got to reach those people who are readers. And another thing, just as a side note, sometimes book readers spend more money than YouTube watchers. Right? YouTube watchers are freeloaders. Right? YouTube is free, <laughs> but books people are willing to pay for. So <laughs> this is another thing, just another thing to keep in mind for everybody out there. Wow, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for giving the, the mentality behind why you publish the books, but also just the mindset behind it. Because some people may be thinking like, I used to have the mindset, to be honest with you, Dre, like I see these people publishing books. And I'm like, that's good for mm -hmm. them. But, you know, I, I don't need to write a book until it was placed on my radar about not only the way I could have an impact on people, but like you said, the permanence of it, what it means. Like, even mm -hmm. if someone never reads it, it's sitting on the bookshelf. So every time they see it, they just think of you and like, man, you know, I should read that book. And they might pick it up 10 years later, um, especially with right. you, man. You got 30 books out there floating around in the world. So it's like when you talk about the permanence and the impact and the, le the legacy that you're leaving behind, in addition to the content, um, it's just it's phenomenal, man. Um, man, we can easily go another few hours. I, I want to I definitely want to be respectful of your time. But my last question for you is what's next for Dre Baldwin? You already have so much that you've accomplished. Um, you already have so much like right around the corner, but we could talk long-term or more like immediate future. What's next for, for you, Dre? Well, talking in the, the long-term, bigger picture, looking at putting on some live in-person events. That's something that I've never actually done. I've done plenty of, a lot of speaking. I mean, you mentioned the TED Talks and you know, keynote speeches and just getting booked to do speaking gigs. I've done plenty of that, but it's always been at somebody else put on the event. They just bring me in. I come in, do my speaking, you no know, collect, check and leave. But putting on my own event, that's something that I've never done, but people have always asked me, Dre, are you ever going to do your own events? So right now, me and uh, my event manager, we are working on our own event that we're going to be doing down here in South Florida in August. And that's, in the, that's a bigger picture thing because not just that event, but just doing those on a consistent basis because a lot of people who are in the thought leadership world, they write books, they have content out there, they are on podcasts, and they do events. That's, it's kind of like a, a formula that people do. So it's about time I start doing my own events, then making sure, putting together a long-term mastermind type of program. I've had a few in the past, but I shut them down because it wasn't always the right offer. So figuring out the right offer for a long-term mastermind, like a more high-ticket thing. And in the short term is my next book. We've been talking about books here. So my next book is called The Third Day. Uh, can I share that with the audience? Can I talk about it? Oh, please do. Please do. Yes. So I got it right here. It's called The Third Day, The Decision that Separates the Pros from the Amateurs. Now, this book is a author only copy, not for resale. That's what that little bar there says. But your book is not going to have that on there. This book I'm giving away for free. And first, let me just tell you what the book is. This book is about my the framework in mind that most resonates with audiences. And whenever I give a speech and I just talk about the overall big picture principles of work on your game, this is one of the ones I talk about. And the third day is any situation in your life when the newness is worn off, the novelty is gone, you're not really feeling that great about what you have going on, but it's your job to get it done and you have to give your best performance when you least feel like it. That's what the third day is about. So it's not really the occurrence, it's the decision. What decision do you make in those moments when you don't really feel like giving it your best effort, but you signed up for this job, so you have to give it your best effort. So this is like the athlete at practice in the middle of the season. You don't really feel like practicing. You're tired. You're hurt. You're injured. Not hurt. Not injured, but you're a little bit hurt, banged up, but you got practice today. Or the parent. Or you're too sick to go to work today, but you got to get your kids ready for school. All right. That's the third day. What do you do in those moments? And that's what separates the pros from the amateurs is the consistency. It's not the talent. It's not the skill or opportunity. It's the consistency to make somebody a pro. And that's why they get paid what they get paid. So this book, I'll give it to you for free. All you have to do is cover the shipping. If you just go to thirddaybook.com, thirddaybook.com, book's free. Just cover the shipping. Right now, this book is in pre-order. So you can pre-order the book right now. On August 3rd, we ship out all books. We have, this is a hardcover. We got paperback as well. Again, it's at thirddaybook.com. So that's the short-term thing I'm focusing on is the third day. Awesome. Yeah, everybody, please go grab that. I will be grabbing that as soon as we wrap up this interview. Uh, Dre, before we get out of here, man, can you please tell people, I know you're not hard to find, but please tell people how they can get in touch with you, how they can get the books, listen to the podcast, all that stuff, please. Sure. Well, I have a solo podcast that comes out every day. It's called Work On Your Game. So you can find that wherever you found this one, you can find that one. And um, on social media, I'm on all the platforms. I'm not on TikTok, but I'm on everything else. The one I'm most active on, because I'm on the stories all day, is Instagram. So my Instagram is just my name, all one word, Dre Baldwin. 
Um, I got several websites, but the one I'll refer you to is thirddaybook.com. That's probably the best one to go to right now. I mean, I have my homepage and all that stuff, but I'm going to send you, if you go to my homepage, I'm going to send you the third day book anyway. So go to thirddaybook.com, get my latest book called The Third Day, because that's the main thing I'm focusing on. And if you hit me on IG, you can DM me, you can ask me a question, whatever. I'll, I'll always respond to my comments and questions and DMs and all that. So that's where to find me. Awesome. Well, Dre, this has been a phenomenal episode, man. I know you're, I know you're a busy guy, so I appreciate you taking the time out to do this. Uh, I'm excited for people to listen to this. You are an inspiration and a prime example of what it looks like to thrive after sports. Hence the name of this podcast. So um, definitely appreciate your time today, man. And I'll definitely be in touch. I'm going to see you at one of your events sooner than later. That's for sure. I'll be there sitting front row. Absolutely. Well, man, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I appreciate you asking me to be on your platform and sharing this space with me. So hopefully your audience got some value from this conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Folks, this has been another great episode of the Thrive After Sports podcast, as well as Author Spotlight and the Power of Story. We appreciate you tuning in with Dre Baldwin. We'll see you next time. Take care.